0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. I'm Dr. John, here providing a voice for the voiceless Jess this week. At the rural gothic harvest last weekend, author and friend of the pod, Howard David Ingham, described Jess's voice as dark chocolate dipped in honey. And I'm afraid mine is a bit more like dark beer with honey roasted peanuts. But if you can live with that, Everything else should be just as you like it. As you might be aware, we are currently living through a major pandemic. You know the best way to avoid COVID-19 is to get vaccinated, wear a mask, and use social distancing. But throughout this whole ordeal, people have been coming up with other various ways to treat the symptoms that would definitely not be approved by the FDA. Between this and our own experience with illness this month, we've been thinking about the Spanish flu pandemic and how people in the U.S. handled their symptoms back in 1918. How? I don't know. Well, I guess that I just don't know. Oh, wait. Heroin. They were taking heroin. So sit down, put that horse paste away and settle in for an extended edition of Same Shit, Different Year. On September 16th, 1918, Lieutenant Colonel Philip S. Dean, Head of Health and Sanitation at the Emergency Fleet Corporation, claimed the outbreak of the Spanish Flu on the East Coast was due to the crews of a handful of German U-boats who had made it to New York. However the flu had gotten there, It was the Germans' fault. And in any case, it was no big deal. In the same statement, he said the Spanish flu was... Nothing more or less than the old-fashioned grip. Grip, at the time, was a term for the common flu. Sound familiar? Despite the precautions being taken, the Spanish flu claimed its first victim in the US in Philadelphia spreading among the sailors and marines until the naval hospital was completely overwhelmed and hundreds of people needing immediate help were transferred to the nearest municipal hospital or treated outside in the navy yard. Within 24 hours, 41 deaths were recorded in Boston. More were reported throughout New England and as it began to spread to the civilian population, A nationwide warning had to be issued to assuage public hysteria. The virus worked quickly, and like COVID, it could also develop into pneumonia. All around the world, the death toll was staggering, with an estimated 50 million people losing their lives before it was over. But then, as now, people didn't necessarily know what they were dealing with, or how to treat it. In a 1918 article on the so-called influenza epidemic, Chicago doctor Albert J. Croft suggested that the Spanish flu wasn't a virus at all, but the result of gases from the First World War ascending to the atmosphere and forming a kind of toxic dome around the Earth. The dome made more sense to him than a virus spreading quickly enough to infect people on opposite sides of the planet. It had to be environmental, or at the very least, divine retribution for the war, which plenty of people believed, and vehemently blamed the Germans for starting. Look, it's easy to laugh at the idea of divine retribution being cited as the cause of a pandemic as late as 1918, but plenty of people have couched the current one in likewise religious terms. You can't fight divine retribution, and as some people are pointing out now, If God wants you dead, you'll be dead. I'm not going to argue with that. But if God wants you to live, maybe she'll provide multiple effective vaccines in record time and have them given out for free to anyone who wants one. Helps those who help themselves in mysterious ways and all that. But this isn't a theology podcast. And Dr. Croft wasn't a priest. As a doctor, he was more focused on treating the body. Assuming the flu was a toxin, he recommended laxatives to flush them out, along with saline enemas. That's right, not a million miles away from people using ivermectin, an antiparasitic meant for horses, Dr. Croft thought you could beat a global pandemic by shitting your brains out. As a side note, if they had used what horses were actually given in 1918 it would have been a little more pleasant. At the time, a common remedy for parasites in horses was to feed them licorice, aniseed and wormwood, which, interestingly enough, are also the main ingredients of absinthe. Alternatively, an addition of veterinary notes for horse owners from the early 1900s says that another way to get rid of parasites in horses is by anointing the inside of the anus with a little mercurial ointment. Gentle listener, please don't put mercury up your ass. I'm not trying to give you any ideas. Croft also recommended Phanacetin, a pain reliever that killed kidneys, and also how it hears, and Strychnine, which is about as helpful and pleasant as injecting yourself with bleach. Disclaimer, that's heavy, heavy sarcasm there. Strychnine will straight up kill you, and so will bleach. But Dr. Croft was not the only person recommending enemas and strychnine. Oh no. An October memorandum from the base hospital at Camp Zachary in Kentucky outlined the standard treatment for patients admitted with the Spanish flu. It started out simple enough as everyone had the equivalent of vicks vapor rub applied to the nose and they were given a cup of warm milk and a basic enema more severe cases were treated with small doses of strychnine or an enema of hot black coffee brandy and water and worse yes worse for this type of enema you'd have to hold it there for 20 minutes Coffee with brandy is delicious. There's a certain logic to treating the Spanish flu with a Spanish coffee. But I'm pretty sure you're supposed to drink it. If you can believe it, that wasn't actually the worst of it. Patients with a cough or chest pain, so basically all of them, were given heroin. As an opiate, heroin was effective as a cough suppressant. But that's not the only thing it was used for. As William Small explains in the Eclectic Medical Journal of August 1919, sleep was critical for surviving the Spanish Flu. As fever and chills could make it difficult to sleep, anything that would help you to sleep was a good thing. Laudanum would have been the obvious answer, but no. It has been our custom never to allow a sleepless night. Hepid sponging may first be tried, but if insufficient, the patient should be given heroin hypodermically, repeated once or twice if necessary, at intervals of an hour and a half until sleep is obtained. A satisfactory night's rest is almost always followed by considerable improvement in general condition. You'd certainly think so. This sounds shocking to us now. But at this point, heroin had been used in medicine for about 20 years. Medical-grade heroin, also known as diamorphine, was first synthesized by British chemist C.R. Alder-Wright in 1874. Nothing really came of his experiment until 1897, when another chemist tried again. Felix Hoffman worked for biopharmaceuticals in Germany. If bias sounds familiar, it certainly should. It's still one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. They still sell one of Hoffman's most famous inventions, aspirin, which he synthesized on August 10th, 1897. Eleven days later, the man who gave the world aspirin invented heroin. Now, at the time morphine addiction was a serious problem in Europe and the United States, following both the Franco-Prussian War and the American Civil War, so Bayer was trying to come up with a less addictive alternative. The drug Hoffman created didn't come out quite as expected. It was twice as potent as morphine, and it would become one of the most addictive substances in the world. It was called heroin after the German word heroisch, meaning heroic or strong. Apologies for pronunciation. When it first hit the market, it was a wonder drug. They said it was a non-addictive substitute for morphine without as many side effects. The Floyd, in retrospect, thinking was that as the more potent heroin required a smaller dose to achieve the same effect, it wouldn't be addictive. Between 1898 and 1910, Bayer also advertised it as a cure for headaches and general malaise, and it was sold as a cough suppressant to help sufferers of pneumonia and TB. It even featured in cough syrup for children and was given to babies to help them sleep. Since heroin was newer than opium and morphine, and initially introduced to treat morphine addiction, Its regulation tended to lag behind that of the other opiates. Before 1906, only five of the then 45 states required a prescription for heroin. and increased federal restrictions on smoking opium from 1909 resulted in more heroin use in its stead. Heroin soon became a recreational drug in the United States. It was a common ingredient in over-the-counter remedies. One of these was Hayes Healing Honey. For just 35 cents, you could get a bottle containing morphine, heroin, and chloroform in 7% alcohol. While honey does help a sore throat, whether Hayes actually contained any is anybody's guess. Packages are rare now, and honey isn't listed as an ingredient. Local drugstores carried it and you could even get it through the mail. It was so popular that it was sold in the then iconic Sears and Roebuck catalog. For $2.50, you could get several doses, a syringe, and a stylish travel case. Much of the advertising was aimed at women who handled more of the childcare and were more likely to become addicted themselves. Apart from veterans, Women were the most likely to use it for various illnesses as well as menstrual cramps, insomnia, and the pain related to childbirth. Since the Harrison Act of 1914, heroin had become prescription only throughout the United States. And in fact, 31 states had already required this by 1914. But prescriptions weren't exactly hard to come by. And the country's at addiction had long since set in. When the Spanish flu began in 1918, heroin was still being used in hospitals and in cures for the common cold. As we mentioned at the start of the show, heroin was part of the standard treatment for the Spanish flu. As we know now, heroin is an incredibly dangerous drug, and as easy as it is to overdose now, it would have been far more likely in the chaos of the overrun hospitals during that time. Even when people lost their lives to a heroin overdose, it might have been hard to identify. In many cases, they would have appeared to have just died in their sleep, presumably from the epidemic. But interestingly enough, Hoffman's other invention, aspirin, may have caused several deaths attributed to the Spanish flu as well. In 1917, just one year before the Spanish Flu, Bayer lost its patent on aspirin in America. American companies flooded the market with it to try and compete. But the boxes didn't include any dosage information. In fact, no one knew exactly how much you were supposed to take. Still, when the Spanish Flu came to the United States, aspirin was recommended as a treatment and bought in huge quantities by the Navy as well as the general populace. At the time, the Journal of the American Medical Association advised people to take up to 25 tablets a day, more than twice the maximum safe dosage as we now know it. Just like heroin, aspirin overdose looks a lot like symptoms of the flu. People would take it to treat the flu, and apparently not recovering... They would continue to take more until they died of what was assumed to be the flu. We have no way of knowing how many deaths from the Spanish Flu were actually caused by aspirin or heroin overdose. In 1919, a Supreme Court ruling effectively stopped doctors from using prescriptions to maintain their patients' addictions to opiates or to cocaine. The following year, the American Medical Association was calling for heroin to be banned altogether as an unsafe and addictive drug. And finally, the 1924 Heroin Act made it illegal to manufacture, distribute, sell, or possess heroin in the United States. Being fast-acting, cheap, easily diluted, and easily transported, Heroin's life as the ideal black market drug was only just beginning, but that's a story for another time. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-662-4357. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you in part, not really, by the power of Dayquil and in association with Canada Dry Ginger Ale, which thankfully does not contain any heroin whatsoever. So thanks to them, to Vix, and thank you, of course, to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis. Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Janine Meeberg, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash history. As soon as Jess can leave the house again, we'll be posting our first episode of the Secret Travel Podcast, focusing on Greensboro, North Carolina during the years of the Underground Railroad. And we're really looking forward to that one. So please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen, because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at dirtysexyhistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos for this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written and researched by Jessica Cale and John Jenkins. Our sources today include Nicholas Bacala In 1918 Pandemic Another Possible Killer Aspirin The New York Times David T. Courtwright. The Hidden Epidemic, Opiate Addiction and Cocaine Use in the South, 1860 to 1920. The Journal of Southern History, February 1983. Dallas Morning News. The Theory Advanced by Dr. Albert J. Croft of Chicago, December 8, 1918. Memorandum for the Treatment of Influenza Pneumonia, Base Hospital, Camp Zachary, Taylor, Kentucky, MSC 38, Glentworth Reeves Butler Papers, 1917-1918, to 1918, October 3rd, 1918. New Orleans States, German pirates bring influenza, September 19th, 1918. Leslie Potter, History of Equine Parasite Control. Horse Illustrated, December 1st, 2012. James Rambin. in 1918, Austinites fought a pandemic by getting drunk and doing heroin. Towers. Redford and Powell, Dynamics of Intervention in the War on Drugs, the build-up to the Harrison Act of 1914. The Independent Review, Spring 2016. William D. Small, The Treatment of Influenza, The Eclectic Medical Journal, August 1919. And the Yale School of Medicine, From Cough Medicine to Deadly Addiction, A Century of Heroin and Drug Abuse Policy. Until next time.